What's up? You're listening to Fork the Product. I'm your host, Nick Casares. And I'm your other host, Zach Cohen. Fork the Product is a podcast that explores the intersection of blockchain, product, and user experience. We interview founders and builders to understand how they're approaching problems in the blockchain space. In this episode, we speak with Katie Jeremko. Katie is a designer who has built and launched successful products for the last decade. She is known for her work with NASA's Open Government Initiative and co-founding Re3D, a maker and manufacturer of the Gigabot 3D printer. Katie is also a partner at Two's Complement, a Colorado technology studio that harnesses the power of complementary design and development for high-caliber teams. Katie, thank you so much for joining us on Fork the Product. It's a pleasure to have you with us here today. Um, to get started, it would be great to have you introduce yourself to our audience and to hear a little bit about your background. Awesome. I am so excited to be here. I'm a huge supporter of technical literacy, open data, and diplomacy of design, but I'm really just a maker at heart. So I like making things that are easy to use, and I found my, my way to user experience design you know, through my passion to enable human creativity and share knowledge globally. Um, innately, I was drawn to crypto for the sole reason of it being part of building a better internet, the way that it was really meant to be built. I grew up in a very small town, upstate New York, outside the city of Binghamton. And my mom was a mathematician and in the first graduating class of computer science at Pittsburgh University. Um, she actually worked for Howard Hughes Aircraft and left that job to raise our family. But she was a tremendous inspiration to me growing up, constantly you know, seeking knowledge and having a spirit for technology. In 2012, I had an amazing opportunity to join NASA headquarters as designer in residence, where we socialized data sets, piloted projects between NASA centers, and sponsored Random Hacks of Kindness. Um, which was a hackathon event. And then from there, (laughs) we actually launched our own hackathon, um, a global hackathon called the International Space Apps Challenge. Primarily, we did this to create and curate innovation around NASA again, using some of the social media tools out there. We recorded like a video of one of the astronauts speaking about it, and we were able to generate... I think it was like about 83 cities and 44 countries altogether of at least 100 people per location to work over the course of 48 hours on 57 high-tech challenges. Wow. And the solutions spanned from software to iPhone apps to earth and science applications. And we had a range of prizes for those winners. That is so cool. Yeah, it was super inspirational and fun. And what a great way to be part of, you know, space exploration and participatory communities. And, you know, so what we did at in this program was we had a hackerspace at the Johnson Space Center where we would play with this 3D printer and talk about the latest technology around the campus. We would talk with like-minded folks who are involved with the Engineers Without Borders program where questions and conversations just naturally came out of their experiences and our experiences. And in 2013, a few of us started this company called Re3D to tackle human-scale 3D printing, Mm. where we delivered on a series of high-profile Kickstarter campaigns 
And um, basically, like we we were part of this bell curve of 3D printing back when it was pretty young, when the patent had just expired on some of that technology. So we were able to work with the government of Chile and South by Southwest and Kickstarter to get a booth to unveil our Gigabot. Wow. But the problem was we didn't actually have a prototype and the event was like six weeks away. So <laughs> we, <laughs> we had to launch our first machine, um, the Gigabot, in that amount of time. So we were like, okay, what's the size of it going to be? What are we going to have as like the object that we print during the event? Um, what is it going to look like? What materials are we going to use? We had no manufacturing figured out. It was out of our co-founder's garage in Houston. So, you know, we had to machine the parts and everything in that amount of time. And that's what we did. We figured it out somehow. <laughs> and in a matter of 24 hours, we, um, of South by Southwest, uh, opening, we landed a story in TechCrunch and we were funded a quarter of a million dollars by real companies and early adopters, which was amazing. Like, I just remember the excitement of running down the street, seeing that article and, and just feeling like I something imagine, had truly yeah. started. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Um, and that's led me to work with startups and Fortune 500 companies on their design and innovation strategy. So I formed a practice with my partner, Nico Valencia, called Two's Compliment. So we work on hardware, software, um, innovation, and product strategy. But we've both known about crypto since 2008. Nico was reading white papers and forums in the late 2000s. And my sister was mining Bitcoin on her small Lenovo laptop. <laughs> wow. So I kind of remember like <laughs> being weirded out by it. But, you know, she uh, since then, she's actually not able to find that laptop. I think she oh my threw God. away or something. But one of oh, the biggest wow. regrets. She's, she's one of those yeah. stories that you read about in like Coindesk. The, the hard drive in the landfill. <laughs> the million dollar Lenovo. Right. Exactly. Right. We, we've actually thought about like trying to track it down somehow, but uh, that hasn't happened. I feel like maybe there's a cottage industry there, uh, you know, a service that's going to go around and help people sweep secondhand laptops for abandoned oh, yeah. private keys. Oh, I wonder <laughs> the likelihood of like cities like New York City and uh, right. <laughs> San Francisco and Boulder. Yeah, no doubt. Well, very cool. Um, uh, th there's a bunch of stuff that I want to dig into here. Before we kind of backtrack and take a path through a bit more of your background, something we love to uh, learn about with our guests is your crypto origin story. How did you go down the rabbit hole? How did you really, you know, what what motivated you to get involved with crypto? Because I think we all have a slightly different aha moment. Totally, totally. Um, I mean, for me, it was, first of all, just being kind of weirded out, like I was saying with the with the Bitcoin miner back in the day and thinking, you know, why is she doing this? This doesn't seem secure. It was totally a question that popped up in my mind. Um, and then I remember that I actually got interested, really interested when I saw a video by Vitalik Buterin talking about his vision for Ethereum and hearing how he wanted to refactor the way that we run applications made me feel as though we don't have to rely on these huge companies anymore to be supporting a network of makers and entrepreneurs. And I've always been about the small. I've always been focused on small ideas that can make a huge impact. And so thinking in a way about getting away from the Googles and Amazons of the world 
and a community of people who are actually supporting it with their own power and computing power was just fascinating. And then when CryptoKitties came out, um, and that was like the first dApp game, a lot of ideas started to generate. And Nico and in my mind, we we just really thought, we want to make a game. Like this is pretty easy to do. There are a lot of um opportunities right now for people who want to engage in this. And that was the rabbit hole for me was, you know, Vitalik and then getting into the gaming culture and how that's like a proof of concept for the platform. Absolutely. Yeah. And I definitely want to come back to games in a little while. Um, the Bitcoin miner uh, that your sister was using, uh, what was your thought process when you say that? And uh, I'm more interested in what was the conversation that you had with her about that? And how did she explain it to you? I was also curious if if you could quickly touch on like what was her origin story a little bit like why did she start mining bitcoin on her laptop <laughs> yeah she she was a she actually was um working in the financial district with a company called credit suisse um mm-hmm. so she was a financial analyst and now she works in vc so she's more on the financial side and I think that she was just interested in it for the novelty at the time and wanted to be part of the movement. But I was visiting her when she was living in New York City. And I remember it was like late at night. We were watching some junkie show on TV and um, she was showing it to me. And I just remember her leaving her laptop open overnight and just thinking like how strange that is. <laughs> Like I was thinking, you know, is, is, is that really secure? <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> she's like, you know, torrenting essentially because that, that is pa- basically the model of how mining works. It's like, you're opening it up to whomever. And actually, since that time, I've actually been, um, the victim of someone mining on my laptop. I had oh, like wow. downloaded something offline and they had installed like a minor in the background on my computer. I was like, why is everything running so slow? Um, not to say it's bad or anything, but I just remember her kind of explaining like, okay, well, I'm actually making coins on my computer right now. It's just like running and it's making these overnight. And, you know, it's kind of just like a fun thing, but it's really popular right now. Very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. One more thing that I wanted to go back to with your background, as you've kind of uh, ramped up on your knowledge of cryptocurrency and blockchain and these new technologies that are, I think for the layperson, incredibly complex and take quite a bit of uh, digging in to really wrap your mind around. I'm curious, you know, obviously having worked at, at NASA, um, yourself, an obviously brilliant person and working with other brilliant people. And then your mom, you, who you mentioned was a, a strong influence on you growing up with a background as a mathematician. Did that play into your curiosity or you know, the, the ease with which you were able to ramp up on tech? I think I've just been really lucky. I've, I've really always followed my passions and my mom has always inspired me to do that. And the funny thing is she didn't even tell me the story about her background until I was in college, I think. So she had been extremely humble growing up. Um, she became a math teacher in order to have like the right timetable with us over the summer to be be able to spend as much time as she could with us. But, you know, she, she's always like stayed on top of the technology that I'm interested in and always kind of understood my path as I've gone along and stayed 
keen on it. So that's been really cool to see. And I feel really lucky. But I think, you know, primarily being part of NASA early on with the open innovation stuff that we were doing, um, I felt at the time like anything was possible because I was working in a government agency that everybody wanted to be involved with, but not many citizens knew how to get involved. So it was like, you know, what's really holding you back from going out and learning technology? Nothing. I I was just lucky because I didn't have that like sense of being held back. And yes, there is always going to be a curve. And I am not a, I'm not a uh, developer by any means. My partner and I kind of joke about this because he says that he's like a junior designer and I'm a junior developer. And so we kind of like pair program and sit next to each other. So it's important to understand how it works, but that's not like how designers need to be thinking about it at all. Like I, I, I just have loved being part of new technology because of its affordances to help growing in small communities utilize something that's breaking barriers. And so for me, it's just been a passion that I've sought out. And it's, I've never even thought like, you know, I can't access this technology. I can't, I can't learn this technology. I've never even questioned that. But I think understanding how technical things work and interrelate is incredibly important. And it can be also incredibly intimidating. There's just so much to learn and it can be so hard to figure out where to start. Absolutely. Let's say you want to build like a simple blockchain application. What language should you use? What development environment? How do you get started? What are the packages and libraries? Do you need a server? What platform should it run on? Why am I getting all these cryptic errors? <laughs> What's cryptography? Um, so I don't blame people for taking one look. Exactly. <laughs> Why do I have two keys? Like, what's a heart? What's a wallet? Um, and a lot of the languages. How much of my economics class do I remember? <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes. Like, why did I? Why did I skip economics class for art yeah. class in high school? Um, and I don't blame people for taking one look and running for the hills. We do not yeah. make it very easy to get started. So that's kind of like the the core of where we're trying to help right now. Yeah, I you know I think that's a, a good time to transition to two's complement and. Even before you described who's complement, uh, which would be great, I would love to understand what that term even means. I I did briefly Google it, but uh, would love to hear you describe it for the listeners. Oh, absolutely. Um, It's actually this dorky math term um, in which it's how you add binary numbers together on a computer system. So there's this like wacky equation to it. And there's this adorable (laughs) man on YouTube who explains how it works. Um, but my partner and I believe in this idea of a balance between technical and, um, you know, aesthetic or design oriented thinking. And so we try to balance each other out in those regards. And we really try to always have balanced conversations and we sit next to each other, working alongside one another, even though, yes, sometimes you do have to throw your portion of the project over the fence. When we work together, we understand both sides of the problem and we try to champion like the the side of design, but also the side of development. And I think that's one of the things that we want to carry forward is just like we bring this dual edge expertise to the table 
And so what Two's Compliment is, is kind of this like MVP prototype shop where we also give workshops on innovation and we also come in to work on pointed solutions that need like market validation, testing, user experience, but also like the full build of that, that feature or that thing. Katie, so is it just you two uh, at, at the agency or are you working with outside contractors or it, it seems like you're taking some pretty big bites of projects. So how are you tackling that full workload? Yeah, it's Nico and I as partners. And then we have a community of subcontractors that we work with on larger scale projects. But we are intentionally keeping this thing small because we've both been part of companies that are scaling and we've just seen kind of the difficulty of that. So we're we're intentionally trying to keep this like unit pretty small, but working with a network of our subcontractors. Yeah, so the I, I love the concept of even just having a group or a network of, you know, contractors that you all work with. And in many ways it's sort of emulating the decentralized movement. So I, I think that's really great. Um, but yeah, I would love if you could, you know, give us a taste of some of the projects that you have worked on or um, are considering working on in the future. Absolutely. Um, you know, in the last couple of years, it's been primarily Web 2 projects. Last year, we saw a lot of Web 3 decentralization slash blockchain system related projects. Um, but the main, you know, DAP projects that I'll touch on for the podcast is um, one is called Growth Chain, which is a distributed decentralized blockchain application prototype that stores sensitive user data on a blockchain across multiple client tenants. So basically, it's a dashboard that demonstrates how every interaction on a platform anywhere can be efficiently cataloged, secured, shared, controlled by the user, and governed by a single entity. Um, It's capable of ingesting, I think, roughly 7,000 interactions per second um, per shard. And so we have like some concepts about how that could scale using AWS or Google Cloud, et cetera. Um, But our primary focus on that MVP was to use user experience and user interface to demonstrate how the API capabilities can be easily understood um, within the experience. So that was uh, just a dashboard of how you can interact with um, user data and how user data can be owned and controlled by the user, but also governed by the entity. Interesting. And can you walk us through the um, a, a little bit more detail about the type of user data you were prototyping with for this project? Yeah. So it was with a with a with a uh, company in Boulder, um, who we worked with before, and basically they have a multi-platform application where they're cataloging how a user is growing over time through like basically an LMS style application. Okay. Um, But the main concern with in the last year, Cambridge Analytica and just data breaches in general is like, how can you create brand trust through showing the user where their data is stored and allowing them to control it um, on a blockchain system? And then we were thinking you know, further about like how that could scale and how, you know, once an entity gets spun down, how does, where does that user's data go? 
and how, how can they monitor, how, how, how can they control it? Um, do these multiple entities co-communicate with each other? Do they co-govern together? Um, a lot of questions came out of that experiment. And is that project, is it just a proof of concept or is that a live product? It's a proof of concept. And then um, our bigger project last year, which I know we'd, we've been excited to chat about, was the World Cup NFT that we did um, last year during the World Cup. So it was a trading card game where certain player cards would become available and expire on the site. And the main goal of anybody on the game was to collect a full team. If they collected a full team, they would win some earnings of the pot. And the pot was basically just a number that grew as more users would come on the platform. Um, so there were like, I think, I forget exactly how many players were in the World Cup last year, but I think it was like 736. So we had like, this is so crazy. We only had like three or four weeks to make the thing because we came up with this experiment at like the 11th hour with um, a friend, Chris Shiflett, who owns a company called Faculty in Town. And we co-collaborated on this project, but we're like, okay, let's just do it. Like we looked into it and we're like, I think we can do this. It's going to be a lot of weekends and late nights, but we made it happen. Um, so we kind of looked at like, you know, Nico and I had no uh, background in studying the World Cup at all. So we started like by watching all the games and looking at the Guardian articles to figure out like where would different players rank. And then we try to create kind of an algorithm that um, put different players into buckets of gold, silver, bronze. And um, it was really funny because obviously like we ran into huge problems exposing the users to gas price and meta mass transactions. Um, there was some sort of like weird transaction attack last year with altcoins. Hmm. I, I don't remember exactly what it was. Maybe you guys remember, but um, the app was essentially unusable for the reason that we didn't see this surge in gas price coming. And that kind of, you know, threw the whole thing away. But um, the experiment was just like, you put your bid in, it would steal your bid in, the, in, a, in like a contract. If you won or lost, you would get the money back. Um, we we would have paid the transaction to have people send the bid to send the bid back to people, but you can claim your money if you lost the bid, or if you got the card, you also can claim your card. So we we had like this system auto release new cards at different intervals, and then um, you only have like a something an hour or something like that to actually bid on it. So whoever bid the highest would get that card, and um, we hacked on like a proxy contract. Um, and how that would look in there. But what's crazy about that is that some folks at ETH Berlin did that where they like paid for the transaction fee as, as their project. And um, I guess that just brings up an interesting topic about the age-old discussion between the trading decentralization for security and design. And then just recently at ETH Denver, we wrapped up a pretty fun project called IPFS Dash. And this project was done to support and advance the blockchain ecosystem. And one of the biggest ways we felt we could do it was to feed into the design UX of solutions that run in parallel with the overarching ecosystem. So we're not seeing like a ton of companies investing in UX right now in the blockchain space. And I'd be curious to hear if you guys have heard of 
that changing, but what we're trying to do with our talents is support the advancement of the user experience. So um, IPFS Dash is like, a, it was a demonstration for how like a highly technical peer-based file sharing protocol, I, being IPFS, could be do- totally dumbed down where you don't need to know anything about blockchain or IPFS, but just benefit from the core tenants of it. So we created a Chrome browser plugin extension that makes sharing files as easy as clicking a single button. Like that's that's the entire interaction is just you have this Chrome extension similar to the Pinterest plugin where you just click on the image or the file and it saves it to your local node. So kind of the, the main idea behind it was the difference between cloud-backed alternatives and IPFS stash is that once added, a file can be accessed by any nearby computer, easily replicated across a global mesh net or market-driven storage protocol such as Filecoin simply by your own private devices. So we were kind of trying to like think about low connected countries who can use this interface to store and share files at a low cost and high performance operation. And then areas of high censorship that can utilize the interface to easily store and share files peer to peer without censored ecosystems. And then like just thinking about um, like the average consumer who can leverage a simple web browser plugin. Very cool. So Katie, it would be great and feel free to pick any of the projects that you described. Uh, but you know, I would really love to just get a sense of the full life cycle of one of your projects and in particular, how you and Nico approach it from the very beginning, even assess whether a given project is worth pursuing. And then, yeah, just kind of walk us through a day in the life throughout the life cycle of the project. I love that question. I think I think what might be best is to talk about the World Cup game because that was pretty interesting and we had such a tight timeline and we kind of thought about it from all angles. We thought about the marketing side of it. We thought about the game mechanics. We thought about, um, you know, the true nature of the decentralization on every single part of it. Um, but it really started for us as just like a quick prototype. And what we wanted to think about was, you know, is this thing, is this an interesting idea for the market? Like, is this, is this a compelling enough idea at the beginning? Just thinking, you know, yes, this is is totally an experiment, but, you know, for us, it was like, there are a ton of crypto whales that are investing in NFTs right now who are just fascinated with it. And we, we even saw that, like, I think CryptoKitties had auctioned off a 100000 or million dollar, like, <laughs> placard. <laughs> Did you guys see that? Yeah. It's like... I think I was actually... Yeah, I, I was... Um, I think I was there for it, actually. I think it was at the Ethereal conference last year. And yes. it was... Uh, what is his name? That crazy guy, the former Fortress manager. Um, yes. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, keep yes, going. Yes, yes, totally. So that was like kind of crazy. And we saw we saw kind of the stars aligning for that. Um, so when we when we first are like validating product ideas, we have to think about um we all I'll always think about the financial model behind it, even if it's an experiment. We're like, how is this thing 
going to work? How are people going to feel about buying this thing? How do they know that they actually own it? Because it's super important when it comes to NFTs. And then how do we keep the train running? Like how, how do people keep coming back and circling back to it and checking back on the site? How do people want to come back and how, why are they incentivized to continue trading? Like we, we try to think about it from all angles. And that's typically what we do when we start out a project is we think, what kind of market opportunity does this have? And I don't, I don't know many other like designer developers who spend the time to do that, you know, but we also like geek out and we want to just jump in. So a lot of our focus is on conducting research around patterns of usage that can be translated over from web 2.0 to the world of 3.0, but as well as those interactions that are new and what feels most right. And the stage that we're at in today's world is that we can make it extremely easy to do this thing that nobody wants to do. Um, But there's a huge hurdle to even getting there. The user flow is a lot more complex with blockchain systems. And there's a series of validations that the user must go through in order to even access the application. So getting beyond the onboarding system is one of the most critical stages of the user journey. And the happy path is not exactly, you know, going to be streamlined. There are tons of detours along the way. And I think that was one of the biggest insights that we had when we worked on the World Cup project was um, we had a really hard time getting users to get beyond the onboarding process. In terms of adoption, only one of our friends had MetaMask installed, and it took several days for people who were actually trying to test it out to get their Coinbase transactions to come through. Mm. Um, So like we were really reliant on MetaMask and Coinbase at the time. And, um, you know, from the outsider's perspective, we really felt like it was a great idea. But we, um, it was kind of crazy building it as an experiment that there were several companies building their own businesses based on similar ideas at the time. About a dozen like games were out based off NFTs and a lot, you know, aren't around today, but it was really great to see that experimentation. And the way that we thought about it was like, this thing is so new that we can't really think about it as like a business. So when we're like first evaluating a business idea, there's an amount of risk and value that you can assign to the concepts that you're generating. Like that's super important at the beginning, just to understand like, how, how should we think about this project? What do we want to get out of it? What are the things that we think we could eventually do with this? And then, you know, framing every single stage of that as being like a learning experiment for this project was instrumental in us not taking it too seriously. And I think that's really important with like new innovation is just to explore and not feel confined by like, I'm going to make this amazing marketing site that sells my idea and a million people are going to adopt it. Yeah, absolutely. At at ETH Denver, Consensus was handing out the Crypto Spring zine that they put together, which by the way, I love the fact that it was analog. That was such a cool thing to do. Um, But, you know, they they quoted Lubin and, and one of the things that he keeps saying is, you know, don't do radio plays on television. When you're trying to innovate. And I think that's so important. Like you you hit on a perfect point, which is just that if we're going to unlock the creativity in a way that's going to be productive for us in 10 years, we can't constrain the focus of our projects to 
you know, our current understanding of what value is. It just yes. it doesn't, it doesn't compute. There's not a, there's not a compatibility there. So I love that. Totally way of agree. Totally agree. I love the way you articulated that, Nick. And, um, I feel like rapid prototyping and MVPing, there just isn't enough of it right now in the blockchain space. I wish there was more because MVPs, um, minimum viable products are great ways to experiment, to learn more about your customers, the problems that they have and the solutions that you can offer. Um, but most of the companies that I'm seeing in the blockchain or decentralized space right now are overly mature in their marketing messaging which is awesome at conferences because it just feels so official. But right. if your product doesn't match the, the description that it's marketing is delivering, that's just like a clear indication that you're putting lipstick yes. on a pig. And yeah, I think there's real cognitive dissonance that, you know, particularly since we're in such an early stage and trying to get people who are non-technical users into the fray, um, when they yeah. experience that cognitive dissonance, it's, it's a turnoff and that could be, you know, our mm -hmm. one chance to get them over to the other side, um, you know, lost forever, potentially couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, I was just going to ask, uh, well, first of all, I love that, uh, you and Nico think about, you know, market size, market opportunity in, in advance of any project that, um, you're tackling. Uh, I, I think, not only is that lacking in crypto space, but I think even in the broader uh, tech space, uh, a lot of people skip that step, uh, despite how important it is. But uh, you know, I think you talked about MVPs, you talked about experiments, uh, and this is maybe jumping ahead a little bit. But you know, I and I know me and Nick uh, loved to geek out over the past couple of years on tools and things. Um, or you know different types of artifacts that you can use to facilitate those types of processes. Um, so would love to hear like what even you know do you use particular templates or um, tools to help facilitate that process of discovery, validation, experimentation, prototyping, and so on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the first tool that I would say is just Google Docs, which sounds so general, but it's awesome. And then from that. We've actually discovered Airtable this past year. and I love Airtable. Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> oh my gosh, there's so much fun. It's You can just like geek out on it in kind of an Excel designery way, which is awesome. Um, but we use Respondent to find participants for our studies. And then we do in-person interviews for qualitative research on like some more of these emerging markets because it's really important to get that qualitative data when you're kind of new to some, you're, you're branching out in an emerging field because you're trying to get more of an understanding of a user's mental models and like how they're kind of thinking about this and like what their comfortability is with it. Um, and then we actually like do a little bit of pricing research and we think about, we have like some templates sort of for our design and development, but we pretty much do everything custom because it's a little bit faster for us. I know that sounds crazy, but we're actually faster at doing things custom than using like a template. So we don't actually have like a UI kit that we utilize every single time or a development stack that we utilize because we're constantly like learning new ways to do things and we're pretty fast. So we're actually, it's faster for us to like make custom forms, for example, than to like use something out of the box. Cause they're like when you're kind of innovating and experimenting, 
you don't really want to be held back by convention too much. Um, but you know, we use sketch, we use Zeppelin, we, we have lately been really heavy on the react side and the react native side. Um, and there's some really cool tools coming out for like doing more design systems within the react ecosystem. So we utilize things like that. And, um, you know, we have like an icon set that we utilize, but for the, for the user interaction flow, it kind of differs based on the application. So we usually end up like kind of customizing that. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense to me. I, I definitely feel that in the work that I'm doing with some early stage projects. Um, it just seems like, like you said, it's changing so fast. By the time you sit down and make a template of something, the world's changed. <laughs> so it's just, <laughs> yeah. just faster to start again. I, I wanted to go back to um, the research aspect. So I'm a huge yeah. fan of upfront design research. I think that it can make a 100% difference in a project. You mentioned Respondent. And I know I've used Respondent in the past uh, for r- recruiting for various things. In my experience, you know, the screener is critical. Um, the criteria that you put out there for participants is critical. Um, I'm curious, has your screener question or questions and has your recruiting criteria changed significantly given that you're exploring a space that is highly experimental and, you know, at times very technical for a user? Yeah, we didn't have we didn't have a ton of luck recruiting people cold for this industry. So we've actually been like recruiting more of our developer friends to help us out with this. And like they, they it's funny because like, you know, they're even kind of falling asleep halfway through the onboarding process. So it's been really challenging and, you know, it's really, really hard for people to want to even get involved unless they see the beauty that we all see. Um, but it's just kind of one of those things that right now it's like really intimidating and most people don't, don't feel even comfortable being at the table. And I certainly feel like that most of the time because I'm a designer and I, you know, at East Denver, like when I'm in a conversation, I'm like, ah, I don't know if I should bring up that idea because I'm not, you know, the engineer building the algorithms. So like even getting users to talk about the the subject, everyone kind of feels like they're wrong. So I think maybe there's even an area to explore within the recruiting side for participants for the crypto space, I think that could be really interesting because it's a completely new industry. Oh, absolutely. Um, It's not like Web 2.0. Yeah, I was thinking about, um, actually this morning, I was thinking about the early days of e-commerce and how in the beginning of e-commerce, you know, sending, sending money to somebody on the web was a pretty risky thing to do. Right? Yes. Like there wasn't really a, a real world um, analogy for it. And it's not something that had been proven out. And they're, they're actually much like, you know, some of the issues with security and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. There'd been a lot of scam and, and mm-hmm. you know, theft and, you know, things that would make somebody turn away from e-commerce. And I was just thinking about how slow that adoption curve actually happened. Um, and so kind of to your point earlier about some projects getting ahead of themselves, I think it's really important to take the long view on this stuff and really think about how, how much of an ask this is for the average person, right? Who doesn't think about this stuff on a daily basis and probably doesn't care quite frankly. Mm-hmm. And even though I can see a future where 10 years from now, it's going to make a huge difference in their life and in our world at the same time, like asking them to do some of these things tomorrow feels like, feels like a stretch. And I, I definitely felt that at ETH Denver, um, yeah. you know, that, that everyone is wrong uh, sentiment or 
nobody wanting to speak up. So I can completely relate to that aspect. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to read a book about how, um, payment systems like that, that journey that payment systems went through. I would love to read a book about that. Um, but I think this brings up an interesting point about innovation in general, which is, you know, the rise and the fall, um, the bell curve. And I saw it in the 3d printing industry where there was like this amazing surge. Everyone wanted one. Everyone was talking about how you're going to have a 3d printer in your office, your kitchen, your living room. Um, for us, it was like, we wanted it in third world countries and huge companies came, swallowed many of us up. There was a winter of like a 3d printing winter, which I think we're all experiencing right now in the crypto space. It's, it's, you know, pretty evident, like we we were lucky at Re3D to like stick through that winter. But, you know, if somebody like, it's kind of this process of someone writes a white paper and moonshots, the hype train runs out of steam. Um, the dot coms went through this and it's totally happening with us. And there's like an argument on both sides, whether crypto's overhyped. The other side is like, no, it's immensely valuable. And there's a huge future in this thing in five to 10 years. And both sides are totally true. Um, And I think, you know, from our perspective, like we switched from working on a lot of dApps last year to Web 2.0 again, because only time will really tell. Like the money is kind of sitting with a few companies right now in the crypto space. And we were kind of talking about the opportunity. We're kind of missing this like VC driven bounty program to light the fire or more companies to have that competitive environment. Absolutely. Um, But like, you know, I think Gitcoin is an amazing model. We love, we love what they're doing. It's just like, there's no incentivization for really talented people to be spending their off hours on this or to be creating companies because the, the model isn't there yet. And that's just how innovation kind of works. So like I said before, like the most important thing to us is making the technology accessible with any project that we do. So at ETH Denver, we didn't work on a blockchain. We worked on a user experience kind of ecosystem project. And I think more projects like that need to be involved in the community. So our our perspective is like more projects like that create more network effect. and if you can gain value from one of the applications without understanding the technical side of it, then that's amazing. Like um, just understanding the value that you're creating for others is one of the most important, you know, um, ideas to really absorb. Absolutely. And um, just like understand that tangible business value, even though that's really, really dry and designers and developers don't want to be thinking about that. If you really want to make an impact, don't do innovation for innovation's sake. Just think, you know, purely about like what is what value are you providing to either the ecosystem or to a user in the toothbrush model where it impacts them every single day in some way. Yep. Yeah, I agree completely. This this takes me back to one of the things that you mentioned in your background, which is the the hackathon projects that you ran um, with NASA and getting you know a wide audience involved in the innovation process. I'm curious, 
what lessons have you carried forward from that that have helped you you know stay collaborative in this in, in crypto and blockchain when you're working through some of these really sticky problems um the biggest thing one of the biggest things that we talked about and took away from that experience was the difference between in-person and remote communities because many times people who were not in person at the event and they were online participating didn't feel like they felt like they were second class citizens in a sense and um i think in the blockchain environment like i see it happening where if you're not able to discuss different protocols and talk about the the math equations in a white paper then you're not really uh qualified to be part of the conversation and I'm kind of seeing like that we need more inclusivity and I don't have like the quite right solution for that. But I think that having like what we did with the international space ops challenge where we would have some talks and things like that, where we would engage people to say, you know, you all need to be on this call at the same time. Um, and then we would branch out and we would say, okay, remote people, we're going to like talk to you specifically and we're going to have a dialogue just with you so you can all speak up and chime in. So the in-person people were not like talking over them. And then we had like small groups. It was like eight, eight focus group sizes, I think. And project teams were like eight people or less. So um, it's really important to like keep those sizes small in order to get everybody's voice around the table. And, to, and sometimes to, to ask, you know, the person who's not talking as much, what are they thinking? It's super important to engage each person and to notice, like, either in user research or just in events in general and workshops, anything like where you're trying to ideate and create the space. You have to notice the people who aren't talking and you have to make them feel especially included because they're not, you know, everybody has amazing ideas, but not everybody has like that personality to be outspoken. It's so true. It's so true. I was uh, having dinner with a friend last night. He's a facilitator. And we were talking about that exact same thing, you know, just how important it is to make sure that all the voices in the room are heard. And I, I feel like in the blockchain space, in the crypto world, there, you know, I, I guess there's a small advantage in that a lot of it is is physically decentralized. But I think you're so right you know, in terms of the inclusivity, I was just out at the uh, MIT Bitcoin conference, and I felt way on the outside of that one, right? So I, I'm not a math major, I don't have a strong mathematical background. And yeah. just to participate in some of those conversations, I feel like I needed to have a PhD or better <laughs> in, in math <laughs> to be part of the be part of the party. And but in reality, the problems that we're solving at the end of the day, they have nothing to do with math, they have to do with people. And, you know, the ideas yeah. are coming from people from all walks of life. So, so I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I'd love to add to that too. Like one of the ideas that we had was to create this game called Santa learns blockchain, <laughs> which is, um, a concept we've come up, you know, we've, we've come up with storyboards. We wanted to build this game mm -hmm. where people can use the metaphor of Santa Claus and his worker elves as nodes and how Santa's list got last, lost last year and how, you know, this year he's using the blockchain to, <laughs> um, you know, his own blockchain to create multiple copies and bad actor elves can't come and forge it and rip it apart. 
And so like, we wanted to create some education around that too, where like, even a kid could learn it. And at first we were like thinking, you know, who do we build this kind of game for? But it's totally an idea. (laughs) Ideas are cheap. Um, We just wanted, we wanted to create some like design theater around the idea. That that is such an excellent idea. I can't wait for that to come out. Yeah. Okay, maybe we should do it then. (laughs) You're absolutely right about the the problem of a lack of inclusivity. Um, And what's so interesting is that, you know, many of these projects are so distributed globally. Um, So you would think it would, it wouldn't be as much of a problem, but I mean, clearly it is. And, you know, the other thing that I think about is how, if you look at like Filecoin's ICO and some of these projects have so much money in their treasuries and you would expect to see a lot more investment from those foundations in um, UX uh, initiatives. And I like you, I think earlier on asked, you know, what are some ideas? I think to me, like that is the biggest opportunity that I see. Uh, And I feel like I've seen a little bit of support for UX research from like the Ethereum foundation, for example, but not nearly enough. And I, I just, I wonder if they're making a mistake with that and, you know, perhaps there is an opportunity, but, you know, I'm, I'm curious to hear what, what ideas do you have for how we can, as a community, better invest in user experience and design and being inclusive of all of that critical work? That's a great question. I think the biggest thing that I noticed was at Denver, there was only one challenge, one bounty for the hackathon that was UX related. So I didn't even feel like, you know, I I really could participate in the other ones as well. And so I, like, I don't know where the money is, but that's kind of what I was talking about with the VC driven bounty program. You know, we, we have buddies at Origin who are at this point right now where they're trying to build the sharing economy on the, on the decentralized uh, system protocol that they're, that they're using. And like, how do you get to the point where you're feeding that, that platform with users, like to get to the Uber point and Uber didn't get to where it's at without its amazing user experience. Like they, they created a new category. There are companies built upon Uber right now. And if Uber's platform stops living to exist in this easy to use realm, then how is that, you know, how are those other companies going to exist? If we're truly trying to create new categories with blockchain, like companies should be investing in this. And Status, I think, has done one of the better jobs. Um, They're talking about language and verbiage and using emojis instead of hashes. Like, I think more of that needs to happen. But it's, it's really funny because, like, you know, then I I feel like I might be contradicting myself talking about the marketing strategy that some companies have where they invest too much in the visual design and they don't think about the user experience. But what I would love to see happen is like a design library of patterns that work in um, Mm -hmm. Web3, but who's going to fund that? And um, like, that's super important. Not, there's not one size that fits all in venture capital to get a company to like moonshot, for example. And I don't think we should be looking for that like moonshot that happened 
at the beginning of last year. I think just having a user and understanding them as a company, like even if you have one user, that's amazing. If you can get to a point of break even within the first year or two, that's amazing as well. There are real world problems out there that could utilize blockchain, either local governments or small systems, et cetera. And we would love to work with those companies who don't have a ton of capital to spend. Like we would love to solve the problems that really need to be solved. And I think there probably are a lot of people who feel that way as well, but um, it's still not there in terms of maturity. Like there aren't enough people who understand the basic fundamentals and education of it. You know, one thing that I think might be part of the issue uh, with all of this and perhaps the like lack of attention given to uh, UX is I think this tension between uh, scalability and user experience. And my sense is that the crypto community in general is like, oh, it's, it's not even worth investing in UX because there is such a lack of scalability and, you know, you have such issues with latency. Um, and you know, the idea is, oh, let's solve those and then let's address it. Um, and I wonder, like, I get that perspective, but I also wonder if there are not ways for us to design around the existing issues around, you know, lack of scalability and latency and, you know, waiting for a pending transaction. I, yeah, I feel like most, most of the community is just, you know, putting all of their eggs in the let's solve scalability basket. Um, well, it feels, it feels very cart before the horse. I mean, you know, it is an important thing that we have to solve and we have to figure out these technical challenges, but I think with the right design feedback loop, we could actually inject more design thinking up front and bring users into the process in a way that would actually validate if we're going to solve the right problem, right? Like maybe we don't need to spend two years working on the scalability solution quite yet. Maybe we need to think more carefully about how you manage private keys and giving people a way to safety when they lose those because they're inevitably going to lose those. And, you know, we need to build better trust in the system. Yeah. So I to- mm-hmm. totally agree. Yeah, I think that there's a there's a little bit of a, a cart before yeah. the horse mentality right now. And I'd love to see that change. And just to that point, like, you know, we talk about the tenants and the principles of decentralization today which everyone's worried about security. But the truth is like, how do you actually know if what your system has is truly secure? Like, are you reading the, are you reading the code? Are you making sure that the code is running um, the right way, et cetera. And like, so I agree with you, Nick, it's like all about trust um, and building that trust. But just to talk a little bit about like kind of the, the barriers to entry in markets, um, just to talk about like when I was at Re3D, I would go out and meet with business owners one-on-one to just record them on video and hear their story, see their gigabot in their workshop or their manufacturing facility. And I was able to take away a lot of insights that I wasn't expecting about, um, you know, how they're, how, how they were using it. Like for the first, you know, the first thing was we got an amazing quote, which was they were able to create a product within a matter of weeks rather than a matter of months, months, which totally revolutionized their, um, their business model. And then also, like I saw that they had this webcam strapped up and he was able to walk away from the printer and monitor it 
like overnight. So, you know, many of these big 3D prints take hours and hours and hours to produce something. But he was untethered from like his traditional manufacturing process and he was able to like do his job better. So I came away like fired up about that and we built a decentralized, well, uh, like a um, distributed uh, webcam monitoring and 3D printing open source application because we saw the value of like, we're not going to be the ones to do it, you know, to the best of our ability. There are hackers out there who are early adopters who can make this product better for us. And I wouldn't have been able to see the business value of that until I had actually talked to the customers. Yeah, I I love that. And, you know, I think, yeah, I I get the sense as well in the crypto community that um, a lot of people are just operating and building off of assumptions that they have in their own minds instead of really designing, well, doing customer discovery and doing design uh, for them. But I wanted to uh, switch gears just a little bit and revisit something that uh, you talked about a little bit before around uh, how you and Nico have you know this group of contractors that you work with. Would love to understand you know what are the team dynamics? How do you operate with those contractors? And yeah, I guess even what is the life cycle of great? We have a project. Um, how do you pull them in, and how do you? Uh, collaborate with them on a given project? Yeah. So we work closely with people that we've worked with in the past, or if it's somebody new, we typically put them on a really short project that doesn't impact the project in a severe way so that we can see how we all work together. But mainly like Nico and I are pretty fast and we're able to do most of the work by ourselves. But then with bigger projects, like I mentioned, there are instances where we're we're, we're, we're needing like more scale. And so we, we have like a group of contractors who have done this really well in town and in, in contrast to like the agency model, which is really hard to do. These people have been around for like 10 years, so they know what they're doing. We just do like standups, typical standups and discuss the project, do check-ins, we don't get to do as much pair programming with the subcontractors as we do with one another, but we typically like to trade off a little bit of the like bug testing between one another so that we're catching everything. So it's really nice to have a partner. And I would say that the team dynamics between us are, are like kind of interesting on the design side because from my perspective, because I'm, I'm the kind of person who loves expansive thinking and brainstorming. And my partner is the kind of person who loves facts and logic and hard concrete truths. So there's like this really beautiful dance that we have between each other where we're able to like expand one another's perspectives on things, but we're also able to, you know, get ideas from other people where they feel like their voice is heard. We have, you know, a developer friend who's like more on the creative side, for instance, and he loves talking to us because he gets kind of to balance both of his modes of working and thinking with us. And that's, I think that's one of the beauties of like having a team is just trying to keep it diverse and trying to have like different perspectives at the table. It's so true. I, I'm curious, I, I think the teaser project in the beginning or the small project to test the, the teamwork, I hear that quite a bit. I think it's a super smart way to work. I'm curious, what's a, what's a teaser project look like for you and Nico? Um, for the development side, for 
Nico, he'd have to answer that. But for the design side for me, it's typically something like a visual project or a small um, part of a feature. So trying to think about like bite-sized projects that can be done within a two-week timeline. Because typically what we try to do is like for our prototypes or MVPs, we actually are able to complete those within a two-week time period. So the two-week time period for testing out you know, subcontractors is really great because it gives them the freedom to work on their own schedule and creates a certain amount of trust with them in terms of like cadence of check-ins. You get two check-ins if you do like a weekly cadence. And then you also get to see like what, you know, this is our typical timeline of being able to turn something around. So what's their typical timeline of being able to turn something around and how do we work within that that timeline together. And what might be in that two-week trial period, what might be some red flags for you and Nico that would signal this might not be a good collaboration? I think for for myself, um, what I look out for is communication and openness to feedback. Like the attitude is a huge element of working together. I think that any skill can be learned. And yes, you can totally like fail at doing an illustration or a dashboard or an app or something. But in, in all in all, like you can learn a skill and the, the more important thing is like, do you have the right attitude and are you, are you taking initiative on getting the right feedback and taking the right inputs and the communication aspect is something that takes a lot longer to learn. So that's the biggest thing that I look out for. Yeah, no, that, that makes so much sense. Um, we've, we've taken quite the trip in the conversation. Um, one of the last, <laughs> one of the last stops for us is to, kind of take a dive into how you think about project success. So we've talked about some of the stuff that you worked on recently. We've talked about some of your earlier projects, um, either with 3D printing or even as far back as NASA. And you mentioned some upcoming work um, this year that that might take you back into the decentralized space, but plenty of uh, stuff happening in the Web2 world. So from your perspective, and you know, feel free to go as broad or as narrow as you'd like on this answer, but what is your definition of a successful project? What is what does a, a good project look like to your team at the end of the day? I think it's different in terms of what does success look like for myself? What does success look like for my team? And what does success look like for the project? And so I, I think about it in like three different ways. So individually for me, it's did I was I able to take away a piece of learning from that? thing. And I feel successful if I was able to say at the end of the day, I learned X, like I learned that this really works. The success for the team, I believe is delivering on time or early and delivering on the scope. So being able to show something like being able to actually show up and be true to your word. I think that's super important is just being, being able to be actually held accountable and show up appropriately in the world, that's success. But then in terms of like the product itself, I really do think that success is being able to find a user for your product. Like if you're actually able to find a real user, not just like the personas who are proxies for the user, but to be able to find some kind of user and then figure out the the model that can lead you to break even on your costs of your sunk costs on the project is amazing. And what we try to think about is like, how can we be multipliers for the projects that we work on? So that's why the business model side of it is really important because 
we don't want to just think about like how to help our clients make back the money that they spent on us. We want to actually think, how can what we do 10x the returns that they have on this thing, even if it's small? So I was part of this program in San Francisco called NDVC with Brights Roberts and uh, OATV. And it was basically this like sustainable small growth bootstrapping accelerator of sorts where he was trying to change the model of like investing in the unicorn company and instead invest in companies that had sustainable growth over time. And I think that's more important is like, you really don't need your graph to go up and up and up. But like, if there's growth over time, that creates a stronger business in general, because you're not having scaling issues. And so I think just another note I'd love to add about the marketing side of this is a friend shared kind of like a funny story with me this week about a company who sponsored most of the events at South by Southwest, yet their Twitter account only had like 200 followers or something. And he felt like something just didn't match up. And by the end of the event, that company did not accumulate any additional followers. Oh, wow. So the optics on a strategy like that, yeah, it doesn't bode no. very well. And it's about your brand and it's about creating trust. So like, you know, kind of what we've been talking about with the cart before the horse is is very true. And like my biggest insight for creating success is when you're launching something, align the stars appropriately, like align the stars, think about all the stars, like think about the big picture, try to zoom out and see all the things that you can leverage and find a bandwagon you can jump on the back of. And that like one unique thing about your story that makes you stand out, just like sell that again and again. And so I think the fact that even dApps have users right now is amazing. And I think if people think about relevancy of like when they're launching their application, it's super important to think about like what stars are we aligning right now? Like why does the story make sense? Like who's going to tell our story for us? And I think that that kind of helps with project success is not just saying I'm going to build this amazing product because obviously if you have a great product and you put the time into it, it's going to be awesome. But if people can't find you, then uh, you failed in some way. Yeah, no, that's that's so true. And I think that is such a healthy perspective on success, you know, to break it down into layers of, you know, personal success, team success, business success. And, you know, I was talking to a friend who's in product management recently, and she uh, enlightened me on the concept of getting products on the shelf versus off the shelf, right? So when you're building mm -hmm. a great product, you might get it on the shelf. And that's, that's great. But if you can't, tell the world and tell it to the right people who need your product, you're not getting it off the shelf. And that's, that's not, that's another level of success that, that I think projects strive for. Um, I love that. Well, Katie, this, this has been an awesome interview. We've really enjoyed talking with you. I, I feel like we could probably keep going for another couple of hours. <laughs> this has been great to dig into some of this stuff with you. Thank you so much for joining the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Katie. It's been a blast. Thanks guys. Yeah, it's been a blast. And um, can I just add one more note? Absolutely. So shameless plug um, is that right now we're working on a playbook for accessibility in Web3. And we are going to be distributing it this year. Um, but we'd love to share like a link with you guys or your listeners for a free copy for whoever is interested in this topic of UX and accessibility. Absolutely. Yep. I am the first name on that list. <laughs> awesome. Cool. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much, Katie.